0: Uh, Today we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John. We've been in that book for uh, a few weeks now, and so we're continuing and really looking at the uh, last few verses of chapter 3, so I invite you to uh, turn to John chapter 3. And as you're doing that, um, just kind of as a reminder of of where we are, um, working our way through this gospel itself. Had just come through some conversations that Jesus had with Nicodemus, and then John the Baptist had with his disciples. We'll get into that in just a moment. So I'm going to read uh, John chapter three verses 31 through 36, and then after I've read that, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the text itself a little bit. So uh, let's read John chapter three verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, an opportunity to gather this morning. God, I thank you for those who are here. I ask that through the preaching of the Word that you would be uh, exalted, that your name would be uh, lifted high. Father, I ask that you would bring encouragement where it is needed. I ask that you bring conviction where it is it needed, Father. I pray that you would use this to shape us more and more into the image of your Son. Uh, may you be pleased and glorified with what we do this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, let me provide just a little context for uh, these six verses here this morning. Uh, as I said, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. I know uh, many of you have been here with us the past few weeks, and so this will be a review for you. If, if you're uh, new and haven't been with us in the past few weeks, hopefully this will help you catch up a little bit of what we've gone over about the last month. So uh, John chapter 3 itself, uh, pretty A kind of famous, I guess, passage of Scripture, a lot in there uh, as we look at what is going on. So uh, the structure of John chapter 3, the first 15 verses, John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15, what we see is Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a pretty influential leader at that time, and Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus. And in that conversation, we see that it is being emphasized that you must be born again. Okay, the theological term that we use is regeneration or new birth. And so it's a conversation with Nicodemus that you must be born again. Right after that, look at John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. It's commentary on that conversation. So Jesus has a conversation, and then you have kind of this commentary on the conversation in John 16, uh, 3, verses 16 through 21. In that commentary, uh, we have a pretty famous verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In that commentary, we see the way in which that regeneration is possible, and that is through the work of Christ, only through the work of Christ for those who believe. Then, continue on in John chapter 3, all right? Look at verses 22 through verse 30. We see, another conversation this conversation is John the Baptist and he's having a conversation with his disciples as part of that conversation we went over that the last couple weeks and that conversation centers really on John the Baptist and what he is doing versus what Jesus is doing and if you remember John the Baptist his disciples were like hey do you understand that like Jesus is getting more followers than you and doesn't that seem to be a problem i mean you're John the Baptist you're a pretty big deal And in that, John the Baptist takes the opportunity to say, hey, remember, I'm not the Christ. I was sent to prepare the way for the Christ. That's the Christ, okay? That's who should be receiving the attention. And so uh, that passage, right, ends with John chapter 3, verse 30, where John the Baptist says, he, meaning Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease, This is what he's teaching his disciples. Like, as a reminder, I'm preparing the way that is the way over there, okay? So, he must increase, I must decrease. And then the passage for today is a commentary on that conversation John had. So, John chapter 3, conversation, Jesus and Nicodemus, and then commentary. Uh, Then a conversation, John the Baptist with his disciples, and now a commentary on that statement, really, of he must increase, but I must decrease. So our our verses here today really is answering the question that his disciples might have had and a question that the readers today of this text of Scripture might have in looking at John 3 verse 30, which is why? Why must Jesus increase and John the Baptist decrease? And we can kind of uh, maybe uh, carry that a little bit further and say, why must Jesus increase and why must I decrease? Right? We can kind of put ourselves in that shoe. So, in those shoes. So, uh, keep in mind kind of that structure of the passage. Again, this is a further explanation of John 3.30. As one commentator says, though, that this entire chapter really works as a unit. Let me read what this commentator said. It said, the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 21, point to an experience that is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. A powerful, transforming encounter with the Holy Spirit. The second half of the chapter, verses 22 through 36, now underscores a commitment to belief or a commitment of belief, a challenge to embrace the true identity, the origin, and the mission of Jesus. So this experience or this encounter that the commentary commentator is saying is really, as I mentioned, this idea of regeneration. You must be born again. And that's something only brought about by the Holy Spirit, and then the commitment to belief that is mentioned is a proper outworking of regeneration within the life of the individual, uh, as illustrated in this context by John the Baptist. So uh, what we will be looking at is why Jesus must increase and John the Baptist decrease. And the quick answer, right, the quick answer is because Christ is superior. All right, so the title of this sermon today is Superiority of Jesus Christ. That, that is the quick answer. I guess if you get nothing else, uh, please make sure you get that from these six verses. Uh, you, you might ask, well, what is he superior to? And the answer is to everything and everyone, right? And so we're going to demonstrate that through the text today. So here's the point. Jesus is superior to his creation, which includes humanity, okay? And because of the superiority, he has the right to demand certain things from his creation. These demands from Christ result in us making less of ourselves and making more of Christ. All right. So that's the s- summary for this morning. And it really, uh, hopefully, even start already to say, okay, let's connect the dots to our current situation. Um, as I was preparing for today, it's like, okay, how, how can a passage like this, what does it teach us about God, right? What does it teach us about Jesus Christ? What does it teach us about the time period and and the original audience? But also, what does it teach us for today? And, And as I was studying looking at that, you know, I thought about we have such a love for celebrities, right? We have such a desire, it seems, that within the palm of our hands, we too can be celebrities, right? I can start my own channel, and I can have my own Hashtag, and I can have my, right? We customize our world to put ourselves at the center of our world. There's nothing wrong with phones, don't get me wrong. But we, we live in a day and age where we can customize things and elevate the celebrity status in a verse like John 3.30. And the explanation behind that really pushes against that. So it, it helped me as I studied throughout this week. I hope that it helps you as we work through this today. To really look at four truths, so our outline is going to be four truths that we see from the text that demonstrate the superiority of Christ. And with that, I, I want to kind of present some questions for us as we go through these truths to maybe help us process through it and maybe drive home some points for us. But let me give you the four truths, and then we're going to kind of work through them individually. So four truths that point to the superiority of Christ. Number one, Christ, superior, origin, and dominion. Okay? Okay. Number one, truth number one, Christ's superior origin and dominion. Second truth, Christ's superior testimony. Christ's superior testimony. Point number three, Christ's superior mission. Christ's superior mission. And point four, Christ's superior redemptive power. Point four, Christ's superior redemptive power. So, uh, with that in mind, let's jump into the text uh, once again. uh, Truth number one, Christ's superior origin and dominion. Look with me again at John chapter 3, verse 31. Reads this, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. We see here in this passage that John is affirming that Jesus is from above, right? This is not new information to the reader of John's gospel. We have kind of addressed this idea before, but it's an essential part of John's argument throughout the entire book. And so he's building this case with example after example, that Jesus is from above, right? So the first couple verses of the gospel itself, just flip back. I mean, my Bible was one page, right? John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? So we see from the very beginning, John is building this case that Jesus is, not from here. He is above all things. We know in John chapter 1, verse 14, that then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that the Word that is being spoken of in the introduction to the book is about Jesus Christ. It's very clear from John's teaching that Jesus was sent from God. So the point is what? Well, the point is Jesus doesn't like, have a message from God. Jesus is the message from God, right? Jesus is the word that became flesh. Jesus is God. Okay, so uh, I I sometimes teach theology and um, hopefully always kind of reflect on theology. And so the theological concept that John is talking about right now is the concept of transcendence. OK, nice big word. Use it three times throughout the week. You'll feel good. Right. All right. So transcendence. We use the word transcends a lot. Right. Or as or a common word maybe to use. We use it in various contexts. To transcend is to like surpass or to to go above and beyond uh, the, the range or the limits of something. So, uh, you know, as an example, right, there are certain uh, people within our society, right, like uh, think of Kobe Bryant, for instance. Kobe Bryant was a basketball player, for those of you who maybe don't know, okay, but he transcended the sport, right? He went above and beyond the sport. He was kind of known outside of just basketball. He transcended that, right? In a theological way, we would say that God is above and beyond. He is separate from his creation. Okay, Uh, notice what one um, theological dictionary, how they describe transcendence. So work with me here. I know we're given theological terms here, but it's good. It's good stuff. All right, transcendence, the attribute of God that refers to him being wholly and distinctly separate from creation, although always actively involved in and with creation as well, but it's the declaration that God is transcendent that means God is above the world. He comes to creation from beyond. During the medieval era, God's transcendence was especially emphasized as evident in the architecture of the great Gothic cathedral and their high arched ceilings that lifted one's gaze upward. All right, so that definition helps us understand that Christ is above, He comes from beyond His creation, He's not limited to his creation. That's what John is reflecting on here. He's affirming the truth in John three thirty one 31 uh, that, that Jesus must increase and John the Baptist must decrease because Jesus is transcendent over his creation. He's from beyond his creation. He's not limited by his creation. You notice in the text there, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, but, but he who comes from heaven is above all. So because He is not from here, he has this position of dominion over all of his creation, which is being uh, looked at here. So, uh, as an example, as another example of this, uh, turn over to the book of Hebrews, okay, so uh, kind of fast forward in the New Testament, a few books, and in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews um, kind of reflects on this as well, as the author of Hebrews, actually in the first few chapters is building this case like, like Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than the prophets, right? And so in the book of Hebrews, we see this being emphasized as well, which I thought was an interesting uh, just kind of cross-reference to look at. So Hebrews chapter 1, I'm just going to read the first four verses that kind of, again, speak to the significance of the person in the work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Notice how the writer of Hebrews describes Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by The word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right? Writer of Hebrews, again, reflecting on the transcendence of God, a similar argument or presentation to what we have in John chapter 3, verse 31. So a question for us to kind of consider as we look at that, Uh, and as we fight against this celebrity mindset of our day, is do we recognize the transcendence of Christ? I think sometimes Scripture, God's moving, God's working, can almost become commonplace in our lives, all right? So I might have shared this story before, uh, might not have, it bears repeating, I, I think, in my mind. Uh, So on a trip to New York City in 2009, Whitney and I uh, went up to New York City. It was a very uh, fun trip. It was like our first trip away once we started having children, and we kind of like left them with the parents and went to New York City uh, because I was helping to uh, train some uh, small group leaders. And so during the evening, we would do the training, and then during the day, Whitney and I just had opportunity to just walk around the city. I'd never been there before. And so you walk around the city, you kind of see the sights, right, get lost and all that good stuff. Uh, But it became really uh, apparent who the tourists were and who the residents of New York City were, right? Uh, Primarily for the reason that the tourists are constantly, like, kind of looking around, like, wow. You know, running into stuff, right, have their maps out. But constantly kind of looking up and looking at what's around them, right? Residents is just... Keep your head down, get from point A to B. I literally asked the group, the one day I said, when's the last time you looked up? Right, because to me, this place is amazing. I think to you, this is just kind of commonplace. Literally afterwards, one of them did write down the date they last looked up, which I thought was a little odd that they knew exactly the date, but it was the building that they saw, right, that they said, it did make me kind of look up. Uh, But I think that's kind of an analogy at times of the Christian life. We just get so busy, and we think it's just the mundane, right? We're just going from point A to point B, and we kind of forget that, like, the God of the universe has given us his word, and the God of the universe is at work in our lives. He's transcendent over all of us. Uh, Pastor uh, Paul David Tripp uh, has a book where he talks about losing our awe of God, right? The awesomeness of God just becomes commonplace sometimes, and he said that's a That's a problem for those in ministry. I think that's a problem for those, uh, the people in the pew, right? It's a problem for us at times that we lose our awe of God. We belittle Christ. Uh, We make him just another person. And when that happens, we strip him of the authority that he has and the responsibility we have to obey his commands. Uh, I realize he humbled himself. He took on flesh. He came, he sacrificed himself, but he's still God. Right? He's still God. So, truth number one, Christ's superior origin and dominion. And then question one, have you lost your awe of God, or do you still understand his transcendence? Let's continue on. Truth number two, Christ's superior testimony. Let's look at the next two verses here. John chapter 3, verses 32 and 33. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony, Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Uh, We will uh, spend a little bit more time with this concept when we get into John chapter 5. John chapter 5 talks about like kind of this testimony and and the significance of that. It takes a little bit longer to explain it, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. But notice the contrast, right, which is pretty common in John's writing. Like, no one receives his message. Okay, as a general statement, but then, well, the, the, the exception to that, those who do receive, right? We saw this in chapter 1 as well. So don't think that old John's contradicting himself. We, we do that kind of thing all the time, right? How was your day? Everybody was mean to me. Was everyone mean to you? Well, not everyone, but kind of everyone. Okay, right? So it's that type of a statement. And in some regards, we would say that no one received Christ's testimony up until the resurrection, really, right? No one really acknowledged who he was, and then the resurrection changed everything, okay? So we see that as a a technique John uses at times. But uh, the point is with this, right, that the testimony of Christ is unique, the testimony of Christ is superior. John MacArthur explains it this way. Jesus' teaching is superior to anyone else's because his knowledge is not secondhand. He is the source of divine revelation, okay? So MacArthur's explaining here the significance of what Jesus is saying. It's not the same even as what John the Baptist was saying, right? Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we understand that Scripture is God's word to us, But when we want to actually see God, we look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, A couple of examples of this uh, throughout Jesus' ministry, we see in Matthew chapter 7. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but... Uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are known as the Sermon on the Mount, right? So uh, the Sermon on the Mount is like this really long sermon that we have with Jesus. And Jesus is essentially saying, like, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. This is what kingdom living looks like, right? We have the Beatitudes as part of that. Uh, we have uh, verses like, don't store up uh, treasures on earth where moth and rust uh, destroy, st- store up yourself treasures in heaven, right? So those types of verses, right? And at the very end of that, in Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus is done, so if you have a red letter, a version of the Bible, like the, 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 the red letters are done, and now it's a little commentary on it, right? And it says, an explanation, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, and when Jesus, Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now notice why. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes right? In, in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he would say like, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. You've heard it said that, but I say to you this, right? He was teaching as one who had authority. His message, his testimony was different. Uh, I do want to mention John chapter 5, so kind of uh, move to John 5 verse 19. Uh, just again, as another example of this, John Chapter 5, again, we'll get into this more detail likely when we get into uh, the sermon over John chapter 5. But the Jews who Jesus is having a conversation with in John chapter 5, they want to kill Jesus. Why do they want to kill him? Because he's making himself equal to God. Uh, So he is, in their mind, elevating himself to a status he should not be at. But Jesus is just simply affirming the fact that he is God and notice Jesus' response to the Jews wanting to kill him because he's making himself out to be God in John chapter 5 verse 19. John 5:19 so Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise." So Jesus doesn't say, well, hold on, you don't understand what I'm saying. I wasn't claiming to be God. He, he kind of doubles down on it, right? And he says, hey, I'm only doing what I see the Father do. My testimony is different from your testimony. It is unique. Jesus appeals to the relationship with the Father, indicating that everything that I'm getting, I'm getting from the Father. It's, it's not even my message. It's the Father's message. James Montgomery Boyce comments on kind of this section of the Scripture Uh, This is his explanation. In all the teaching of all the other religious leaders of this world, truth is always mixed with falsehood. Therefore, those who teach, if they are wise, always point beyond themselves to that which is higher. This is never done by Jesus. Others pointed down the road to a far destination. Jesus claimed that he was that destination. Others taught that they had aspects of the truth. Jesus said, that the truth had come in his person. Others offered to show the way to God. Jesus said that he is the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. So what is Boyce saying here? He's saying that John the Baptist prepared the way. Jesus is the way, right? He must increase, I must decrease, and John was happy to acknowledge that and teach his disciples that. And so I'll admit, right, that this, this is a struggle for me, all right? So uh, Christ's testimony being that, straight from God, but I, I think it's a consistent struggle for all of us at times to kind of want the spotlight, right? As, as we kind of reflect on what God's doing in our life, as we reflect on maybe the position God's given us, we often use our position to build our own platform. John the Baptist, in his words and his explanation, is pushing against this to say it's not about me. I know my own job, right? I'm in front of people a lot, and even preparing to, to, to preach or to speak, right? It's, well, I, I want to do a good job. I kind of want people to like me. You know, that love language, words of affirmation, it kind of gets me, right? And in all of that, it's like, well, but God, but like, make sure it's not about me. Make sure it's about you. I mean, if anyone, right, would say that like, I'm pretty awesome. John the Baptist would be pretty high on that list. Like, like, that's my cousin over there. Like, you know, like, cool by association. And yet again, he continually deflects to the person of Jesus Christ. So maybe we not use the platform God has given us in whatever capacity, To bring glory to ourselves, rather, may we follow the example of John the Baptist. Use the platform that God has provided to bring glory to God. So, truth number two, Christ's superior testimony. Question number two, am I building my own platform or am I pointing others to Christ? How are you using what God has given you? Are you using it to build your own kingdom or God's kingdom? Truth three, continue on the passage, verses 34 and 35. Verse 34, <clears throat> for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So there's a, there's a whole lot to unpack in these verses. Uh, probably a sermon in and of themselves, right? And so we could, uh, you know, spend time maybe after the sermon Uh, just kind of talking through some of the themes that we see here in just these two verses. Uh, But let me point out a couple things. One is, uh, it's important, I think, to point out that all three persons of the Trinity are actually mentioned in these couple verses. Uh, We see this from time to time throughout John's Gospel. We see this in other uh, Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, The Father sends the Son and gives the Spirit without measure. We see that in these verses. Uh, So I'm not going to go into all the specifics of the Trinity. Uh, That would be a very long conversation, and I don't claim to understand all the specifics of the Trinity. But I do want to point you to our statement of faith, all right? And so uh, on our website, you can be found, uh, ccfva.org. But uh, concerning the nature of God, let me just read our statement of faith to you, and it just affirms what we see in Scripture. Uh, Our statement of faith reads about the nature of God. We believe there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite, intelligent spirit. His name is the Lord, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. He is the inexpressibly glorious in holiness and is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons— the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are equal in every divine perfection, and they carry out distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. So, here in the Gospel of John, we see the three persons of the Trinity being referenced. In the next verse, you'll see that it's in the context of salvation or belief in eternal life. And again, in our doctrinal statement, we want to be true to the Word of God. And understand the very nature of God, the three persons of the Trinity, work in harmony uh, concerning the uh, work of redemption. I'd be happy to talk through this more uh, as we go, and even in the Gospel of John, uh, uh, towards chapters uh, like 14, 15, 16, talk a lot about the work of the Spirit within the life of the believer, and the work of the Spirit within the life of Christ. So um, we want to acknowledge that the persons of the Trinity are mentioned in this passage. Secondly, what I want to look at is the fact that Jesus was sent. Okay, so I think sometimes we maybe lose sight of the fact that, like, he came with a mission, okay? He he came on purpose, so Christ's superior mission. What exactly is that mission? What was he here to do? You have a lot of voices in our society today saying, Jesus shows us this, or Jesus shows us that. Well, why did Jesus think he was sent? Uh, Thankfully, Jesus tells us that. So again, we're going to stay in the Gospel of John, but we're going to go towards the end of the Gospel of John. So move to chapter 17. Uh, This is uh, very close, right, to the time when Jesus is arrested in the garden. Okay, so now in John 3, we're kind of early in Jesus' ministry. John chapter 17, we're very late in Jesus' ministry. This is right before he's arrested. And we see what is called in many uh, Bibles, like the high priestly prayer. We see a prayer that Jesus is praying. So God the Son is praying to God the Father, okay, in this passage of Scripture. And it helps, though, to Show us what the mission is that Jesus had. Why was it that he came to earth? Okay, so I'm going to read the first five verses of John chapter 17. So John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Praying to the Father, actually praying about himself later in the passage. I'll let you read that on your own time. He prays for his disciples. And then, uh, really neat, also later in John chapter 17, he actually prays for those who believe as a result of the testimony of the disciples, which would be those of us who believe. And so, uh, really neat prayer from Jesus in John chapter 17. But uh, on point for what we have now, Jesus was sent on mission, and his mission was superior to that of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was to prepare the way for Christ. Jesus is coming saying, I am the way. We see from the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, he was sent in the world to glorify God the Father by providing eternal life to all who believe. He was not pointing to someone else. He was pointing to himself. We especially get that as we'll look at the last verse, but uh, here for verses 34 and 35. This mission of Christ is important to remember because if we reduce Jesus to simply a good man showing us how to care for the poor, for instance, or care for one another, we reduce him to just another guy. God doesn't give us that option here within Scripture to look at Jesus as just a good guy, right? Jesus is continually presented as God himself. Remember this entire passage is speaking about the need to be born again or the need for regeneration. And because of that new life, then we are unable to make much of Christ and we are able to decrease our own influence. If we forget why Christ came, we end up incorrectly prioritizing the person and work of Christ. So Christ came with a mission that he had to fulfill. And then as we continue on in this passage, we see that how he was able to do that. Is the enabling of the Spirit. And this is where we could again spend a whole lot of time. There's some books been written on this topic. And that is, what is the relationship of Jesus to the Spirit during kind of his three year earthly ministry? We often emphasize the deity of Christ, which is very important to do, and scripture emphasizes that. We also have to understand that the Word became flesh, took on humanity, right? And so because of that, what is the relationship and role of the Spirit within the life of Christ? Um, I'm going to uh, give you a couple thoughts here. Again, not maybe a full uh, handling of that, but a couple things to consider as we look at the work of the Spirit within the life of Jesus. First of all, uh, John chapter 1. So let's turn back there again. I know I have you moving back and forth in Gospel of John, but that's good, right? Uh, John chapter 1. We see right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry the importance of the Spirit's work on his life. Okay, So we're talking about John the Baptist in John chapter 3. Look at what John chapter 1 says about this as well. John chapter 1 verses 32 through 34. John chapter 1, And John bore witness, this is John the Baptist, bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, meaning Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, so God the Father who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, kind of the affirmation to John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for the Messiah, says, whoever the Spirit descends on and remains, that's the one. John says, "That's, that's how I knew that this is the one. So the work of the Spirit in the life of Jesus is at the very beginning. We know from... Matthew then, Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus right after this, okay, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 4, right after Jesus is baptized, it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And we know from that passage that he was then tempted by Satan, and he uses Scripture as he answers Satan, right? But we see the Spirit immediately leading him, and Jesus' relationship with the Spirit being a unique one. Uh, I do want to turn then to Luke chapter 4, so... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So turn back one book. This is uh, perhaps the uh, one of the best pictures of the work of the Spirit on the life of Jesus that we have. Luke chapter four. <clears throat> Going to start in verse sixteen. Luke chapter four, verse sixteen. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, this is verse 18 here, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." We see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. We see that Jesus is acknowledging that he has been uh, anointed by the Spirit, the, the Spirit of God is upon him. And the importance of that then as Jesus lives a Spirit-empowered life uh, as he does his ministry and as he performs his miracles. Uh, we could maybe spend uh, some time talking after this just about even in Jesus taking on of humanity the way in which he then relied on the work of the Spirit in his own life, and then the significance for us, right? Uh, Of course, Jesus did not have a sin nature like we have, but the significance of the example Jesus gives us of relying on the Spirit and performing miracles through the work of the Spirit and and understanding things through the work of the Spirit uh, in, in the taking on of human flesh. So we see the importance of the Spirit, and then also we see from verse 35, if we go back to John chapter 3, verse 35, we see that God has, as a result of all these things, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and then verse 35, that God has given him uh, all things into his hand. Again, not a new concept necessarily, but a reminder to us as we look at the superiority of Christ and the superiority of his mission of why he was here and what he is doing Uh, passages like Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and we know that all authority has been given to Jesus. We've looked before many times at like passages like Philippians chapter 2, where Paul talks about the humility of Christ, but as a result of that, every knee will bow and every knee will confess, right? So all things have been given to Christ, and we see John uh, indicating that in verse 35 here uh, with the Father's love for the Son. John affirms the unique relationship not just with the Spirit, with God the Father as well, and the authority that God has been given as a result. And it is because of this authority, it is because of this unique mission he's been given, that Jesus' superiority is to John the Baptist, and really to all of us as well. So it's important as we think through the mission of Christ to bring glory to God, to rely on the Holy Spirit, to bring about salvation. Where do we fit in all that? Well, we are called as we are being conformed in the image of Christ, we are called to rely upon the Father, right? We are called to the the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, not that we then bring about salvation, but we walk as a result of that salvation and newness of life. So, truth number three, Christ's superior mission. And question number three is, am I following the example of Christ, leading in reliance on the Holy Spirit to bring glory to God in my life? I think john the baptist recognized this i think john the baptist understood that he was on mission but he was on mission from god he was preparing the way for the savior the messiah not the messiah had been revealed he was stepping out of the way he was not primary he knew christ was primary and then finally truth number four christ superior redemptive power Uh, Let's consider this last verse in our passage for this morning. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Once again, we see the use of contrast here in John's writing, contrasting between two categories of people, those who believe and obey and those who don't believe and do not obey. Uh, It's not really surprising that John goes here. If you remember the entire reason for his writing, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, uh, verse 31 says, I've written all these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John continually comes back to this aspect of belief and eternal life that is a result of that. We saw that earlier in John chapter 3 as well, and being born again, and those uh, John chapter 3 verse 16, right? The significance of the love of God and those who believe not perishing. Uh, but notice a couple things here. It's, it says not that they will have eternal life, but they have eternal life, right? There's a, there's a present aspect to the eternal life that we have for those who believe, right? I, I think sometimes we get so focused on the future, right? Which Focus on the future can be really important, right? And the hope that we have in the future that we forget, like, eternal life, in a lot of sense, like, it, it starts now, right? The kingdom of God is now, right? And it's not fully realized, right? There's still the sin nature, and Paul, in a lot of his writings, has a lot to say about the struggle that we continue to have. So we we do live in light of the hope, but there's a present aspect to that, right? There's a It's like kind of a... a You know, almost here, but not quite yet here, right? But it's there, and I experience glimpses of it. And so when we take communion, when we come together as the church, right, as we see the community of believers, as we read God's Word, there's aspects of that that we experience even today. We currently have this eternal life through the work of Christ. And so God then, or or John then, um, contrasts those who believe and, and look, at the, kind of look at the verses quickly here, or, and, and intentionally. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If I were writing this, I'd say, and whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But that's not what he says, right? He, he does compare belief and those who don't believe elsewhere. But here he says, those who believe contrasted with whoever does not obey. Keep this in mind as you read through the Gospel of John. Like, this idea of belief and obedience, like, hand in hand, right? Hand in hand. We talked about this, actually, as we prepared for John chapter 3, that, like, hey, there's some who say they believe, but the belief they have isn't really saving belief, right? It's kind of like the, believe, uh, the, the demons believe, but they don't really believe for salvation, right? So, true belief brings about obedience, So if in your life right now you're like, oh, I believe, and people are like, you don't live like it. Oh, no, but I believe, then I think Scripture would say you better reevaluate some things, like seriously reevaluate some things. Like if you're living in sin, Scripture has a lot to say about that. And so I would question a person's belief, right? So take 20 minutes, okay, we're going to turn to 1 John and look at like two verses, but take like 20 minutes and read through the book of 1 John this week. Just do this afternoon, right? Before the nap, game doesn't come on until 8, you'll be fine, right? 20 minutes, read through the book of 1 John, and notice how many times this idea of belief and obedience, it just, I mean, it just goes hand in hand. So, But let's turn there uh, just for a couple verses. 1 John, so this is the same author as the Gospel of John, Just a letter that he wrote, 1 John, chapter 2. We're going to start in chapter 2. Again, just, just a few verses. But notice the connection between belief and obedience. For some reason, our church today, I say the church in general, but like we have separated those two. And, and it, it's the, the, the uh, result, I think, is devastating, at least for the church in America, right? We, we've made it very easy to say we believe. I, I mean, I, right, I'm going off script. I apologize. Um, like, I, w- I work around a few thousand college students, okay, who are wonderful. This is not a criticism. It's an observation. Yeah, we'll go with that. But who will say one thing. And then, like, immediately go and do something else, right? Now, lest I'm like, how could they do that? I also look at my own life at times and say, oh, I believe this, and then I go and do something else. And it should cause us all to say, do you really believe? Do you really? Because it will affect everything. If your heart has changed, right? That's an organ that pumps blood to every aspect of your being. So, if your heart is truly changed, your behavior will change as well. All right, First John chapter two, a couple of verses, verses four through six. First John two, four through six. Uh, verse four: Whoever says, "I know him," but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this. We may be sure that we are in him, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Obedience and belief going hand in hand. Turn to the next chapter. Just going to read one verse from 1 John 3. Again, similar argument. 1 John 3, verse 10. 1 John 3, 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? Obedience to the commands of God. In chapter 2, chapter 3, it is practicing righteousness, loving our brother, right? Obedience, belief, the two go hand in hand. So here's the point. If you say you believe in Jesus, but you don't obey the teachings of Jesus, then you really don't believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you remain under the wrath of God. Again, just as is a present reality to eternal life that is offered, notice what is said here in the last phrase of John chapter 3, verse 36, but the wrath of God remains on him. Yes, there's certainly something in the future, but the wrath of God is a present reality as well. I know we struggle with this at times. I do see many places in my own life where I say that I believe one thing and then I go and do another thing. I do believe there is grace offered. I strangely, maybe incorrectly, take comfort in the fact that a lot of Paul's writings or to the church, and then he calls them out on the sin that they're doing in his letter. It says you need to repent. You need to set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth, right? So I understand that. But as we examine our hearts, right, in times like confession, in times like preparing to take the elements in communion, let the Holy Spirit be working and be attentive to that, right? To say, am I truly a child of God? As we close this section, why is Christ superior? Because Christ is the one who holds eternal life. He holds the keys to the kingdom. Christ alone has the power of redemption. We see that in the context of this passage. We see that as a theme throughout the entire book of John. Let me remind you, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Life. Truth number four, Christ's superior redemptive power. Question number four, am I trusting in Christ alone for salvation? And maybe a follow-up question, do my actions evidence the belief that I have? So as we conclude, we set out to answer the question, why must Christ increase and why must I decrease? We said it's because of the superiority of Jesus Christ. We see this evidence in four ways, right? His origin and dominion, his testimony, his mission, and his redemptive power. I think one uh, commentary that I looked at sums this up pretty nicely. Let me read this for you, and then we'll uh, pray and be done with the message. This is what the commentator says. At the core of the Baptist argument against his followers' views is an understanding of Jesus that sets him apart from every other human being. Christ is superior to any other person on earth. He has come from above. He has been sent by God, and God has given him the spirit without limit. The Baptist cannot rival those credentials. Therefore, every form of human wisdom, every form of religious expression must be seen as secondary to the revelation we possess in Jesus Christ. Indeed, every charismatic teacher Every gifted leader must decrease so that Jesus alone is seen as preeminent. Powerful words, right? So in this celebrity culture we live in, as it creeps into our own homes, into our own lives, I encourage you to take some time throughout this week. Let the Spirit of God examine your heart and see if you really believe that Jesus is superior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you are superior. I thank you that it does not depend on me or depend on us. I pray that these words of John the Baptist, that you must increase and we must decrease, God, may you use those words, God. May you use this understanding, this commentary on these words, that you are superior. May that sink into every just fiber of our being, God. May we truly believe that. May that be evidenced in the way that we treat one another way that we interact with your word, the way that we are led by your spirit. God, I thank you for your patience with us. Without that, we are hopeless. God, but may we be a community of believers who take seriously the word of God, who has a commitment to you and to one another, and may you continue to work in our lives throughout this week. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.